On this episode, I speak to another good friend of mine. He's an Australian, one of the best back three players to have ever done it. My partner in crime in Hong Kong He's actually a big fan of Eddie Jones. It's the wonderful, the legendary Drew Mitchell. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Give me a gem is wearing his heels. Marching around the town to get some thrills. But it's time to go in now, and he's big and red. A shot of black coffee, now he's super dead. He gets loud. I'm a big dick owls. I showed him lots of whiskey, and he shoots like a mouse. Look at you, glass of red wine in hand. I bet that's not any glass of red wine, is it? That's the Drew Mitchell line, is it? No, it's not. It's just a little French number from Bordeaux. What happened to your wine? Uh, look, it's now just a, it's a rare commodity. We uh, we end up parting ways with our business partner. So yeah, like the ones that uh, that are left, are, they're a rare commodity. Smart. The price has gone up from five bucks to ten bucks. Easy. And your admin is I'm going to say worse than mine. I don't want to tell the listeners that I've got a PA, but I've got someone who helps me out managing my diary. You need that as well because you've been on here for two, two days, have you not? Yeah, I've basically been sitting here with a red wine for two days, waiting for you to, to zoom me in, but. I don't know, like with all the whole Greenwich Mean Time and and what where you are at and where I'm at. It's just easy just to ask a question with someone who probably knows more than me. I don't even know what Greenwich Mean Time means. What do you have? So if we've got GMT, I don't even know what that is. We go Eastern Standard Time, I think. I know there's Greenwich Village in New York. That's all I know. Maybe it's a geography for dummies on there. <laughs> Mate, we're solving all the world's problems here. Well, one of the biggest problems in Australia, and I was reading a stat. It might it might have been three years ago, but let's just say it was before the first test of the June series, that ballroom dancing was ahead of rugby in terms of participation numbers. And I thought ballroom dancing is like one-on-one. It could be obviously two-on-two. I don't really watch it, but tell me that that stat was true just for the band. Mate, look, we, we're, we're keen ballroom dancers down here. Absolutely. Yeah, we'd like to shuffle across the uh, the dance floors. And, and it's been a tough time during this pandemic. None of us have been allowed to get up and dance. So I think that's probably why you've seen a surge in numbers in ballroom dancing and <laughs> and mate, it's pouring down rain here as well. So who'd want to go play rugby? You want to get inside and, and get, get a partner and have a little dip. Right. I say that tongue in cheek, but it's not because people think we might be taking the piss. But is it the case where rugby has been on its knees in Australia or not? Is that just a few kind of whispers? I know we've chatted over the last few years and we'll get onto the positives now, but there was a feeling that rugby in Australia, rugby union wasn't doing as well as people hoped, both commercially, both from a viewership, you know, people turning up at the stadiums and participation. Is that the case or not? Because we're going to look forward for the positives, but 
has rugby union been fucked in Australia? Yeah, man, I think we've got to, uh, you know, just sort of call a spade a spade. And at the moment, yeah, I mean, it's it's been a tough few years. Oh, probably not even a few years. It's been it's been a, probably a bit of a decline for a while in terms of numbers. You know, I mean, I think when we're in, we're in probably one of the most competitive sort of sporting markets, given that we've got Australian rules football, you've got the rugby league, we've got uh, cricket soccer as well and our population's just just hit 26 million and there's just so many offerings now and mate, to be honest I think the, the whole concussion thing's probably really smacked rugby a little bit as well in terms of child participation and and parents not wanting to put their kids into it the other thing around obviously participation comes with cash and the other the other sports that I just mentioned particularly AFL got a really strong junior program called Oz Kick uh, rugby league do us as well because they've just they're just so well funded mate like each of the 16 teams in league and, and AFL have all got their own sort of like clubhouses and, and you know, like they, they just like, a, they just turn money out, mate. Like the, the amount of poker machines and some of these, these clubs and the membership drives that they have just mean that there's just so much cash for, for their junior programs and they're just more sort of touch points for these kids. And, and yeah, we're, we're doing it tough. I think for too long, we've, we've relied on the GPS schools, like the, the private schools to really supply us with our, our future generations. And, and what we're seeing is now is the AFL really jumping into the, the, the GPS schools and to say, look, we can fund the programs, we can do this, we can give resources, give everything because I've got the cash. And whereas, you know, rugby just sort of can't compete with that. So what that means, mate, is that we've been doing it tough for a while, but there's brighter, brighter light on the horizon with uh, the next 10 years here in, in, in Australia. Look, it's by no means is it a foregone conclusion that we're going to rein that back in, but it, we've got a great opportunity with the British and Irish Lions visiting in, in 2025. Well, firstly, we've got the, the World Cup next year in 2023 to really create some interest around the game. Uh, the British and Irish Lions visiting 2025. We've got the World Cup hosting rights for 27. We've got the women's in 29. So there's a 10-year decade sort of period where we've got a lot of money coming into the game. So it's really, it's crucial that we make the most of this opportunity to make sure that when we get all this cash, we're putting it in the right development pathway and grassroots programs to to entice kids to join our game. Is there a perception that the AFL and Rugby League is safer than Union or not? I know Rugby League, for me, is barbaric, but I like watching it. Yeah. Is there a perception that that's safer than Union or not? Or AFL, like you mentioned the participation, because I don't want to get into the concussion stuff right now. It's one of them things that we're all talking about, we're all thinking about. But it is the kind of headline news around Rugby Union at the minute. Is it the same in League and in AFL? What's that like? Do they have similar protocols? Do they get injured? Is there concussion issues in that sport? Well, I think, uh, look, there's, I mean, rugby league is, they're probably fighting the same sort of fight that we're fighting. I, I think it's probably just the, the narrative around AFL, I think, is a lot better in terms of being able to sell it because it's not as, it's not seen as much of a contact sport because, you know, that it's vast amounts of space. The bodies aren't as big. The collisions are seen to be not as impactful, but, the one thing about AFL is you've got to be aware 360 degrees, right? Like you can get attacked when you're going up for a ball and be unsighted and someone come over the back of you and you've got knees up and going for the ball and contesting. So I think they've probably been better at uh, the narrative in which they're, they're, they're pushed out in the media and, and certainly to the mums and dads. Uh, rugby league, like I say, like it's, you know, it's a pretty, it's a tough sport, mate. Like you look at the state of origin, it's a bloody tough sport. So, you know, they've got a really big following and membership base and, and support here in Australia and, the other thing that makes it really difficult for us is we've got five professional teams here in Australia. Rugby League have 16, AFL have 18. So the other thing as well is that obviously just having more teams and more more heroes and people to look up to is you've got more players that are able to get out in the community and, and go alongside and these kids can get selfies with them and, and really get to know their heroes. And 
it's it's difficult when we've got five teams and each of those teams representing the entire state to really get out there and, and, and push that around the communities as well. So, look, it, it's, it's multi-layered, but, yeah, the concussion stuff, probably more so rugby union, rugby league. AFL, I think, have probably done better at controlling the narrative around that. Yeah, and then obviously soccer, it's not really much of an issue. And then Darcy Swain goes and headbutts Johnny Hill, just to throw it into the mix. Yeah. But it's all right. He only touched him. He only, he only headbutted him a little bit. So, like, he might get off. <laughs> mate, I, I just think, like, you know, like, on that, mate, like, I just... The only reason there wasn't so much damage or impact is because it was at his full range, you know? Like, he, his neck didn't go any... He couldn't go any further. I just thought... Like, I, I get it. I get what Johnny Hill did was wrong, right? Like, I get the hair pull. We don't want to see that in our game either, but... Darcy Swain pulled his hair back. So if you want to go eye for eye, like, okay, they're all, they're all, they're all even, they're square. But you could just see, as they kind of separated, you just see the red mist come over Darcy Swain's face and just go, nah. Because earlier on as well, in, in uh, what we saw in, in some of the footage was Johnny Hill gave him a couple of open hands to the face, which again, we don't want. But how many times, like, we know that you don't take things into your own hand. And we also know, I, I personally think headbutts are in the same sort of vein as as elbows, gouges, spitting, you know, that type of thing. You just don't do it no matter what happens in our game. And and I don't think we'll see him again in the series. Oh, we won't. And that's the thing. Like, you could see, I don't know whether he's a posh lad. I don't know whether he's well-educated. He don't seem like he's a street brawler, even though there was a bit of hair pulling. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is I don't think he's ever headbutted anyone in his life because he's no. gone full long range and he's not even <laughs> connected, but it's the intent. I don't know what the guys are saying after... In, terms of some of the stuff that I've seen, that it weren't that bad a headbutt. But you've just said it there. Like, he's had the red mist. And I can see I've been there before. They were chasing each other around the pitch. I I don't agree at all with hair pulling. I think that's a bit shithousery as well. Yeah, yeah. Goodness me. I mean, what's his background? Because I I don't want to go too hard on him because there's no doubt about it. He's, He's going to be out of the series. The podcast will come out. This is going to be evergreen or whatever. But what's his backstory? Because you mentioned having players in Australia in union where people can kind of latch on to become heroes. You look at Eben Etzebeth. Look, I mean, I don't yeah. think he's ever headbutted anyone. He might have. <laughs> but in terms of the way that he plays, right? You think of yourself and Gitz and Quaid and I, the list is bloody endless. You know, Nathan Sharp, John Eels. What's he like as a lad? Is he a bit kind of trying to build himself up? Is he a fake tough guy? Because we've been a bit harsh around him here. Let's let's talk him up if he is a decent lad. Matt, he's honestly, like my all my interactions I've had with him, with the broadcast stuff, you know, he's a, he's a genuinely nice guy, softly spoken. Uh, he seems to be really well liked around the group. And I just think, I just think sometimes you just get some people sort of, you know, come through that want to want to impose themselves as a tough bloke and as an enforcer. But I just think they get it wrong. Like, to me, open hand slapping off the ball, hair pulling, head butting, that's not being tough. Like being tough is the tough carries that no one else puts their hands up for off your own line, getting on the front foot, being tough with your shoulder and making sure like mate, when I was in counterattack, you know, back when I was playing, you get a ball in counterattack and you look up, there was a couple of genuine tough guys in a team that you just go, I'm not gonna go near him. Why Cliff Palu, thanks very much, but not gonna run at your shoulder. Like someone like that, right? Like Cliffy Palu's just got a bit of an aura about him, but never because he headbutted someone or pulled their hair or did some off-the-ball incident. Like, that, to me, is just not tough. Tough is, like, the, those things I mentioned, the, the tough carries, um, the hard carries, the just being that sort of imposing figure in the line all within the rules. I mean, Darcy, I think, I, I, I honestly can say that it's out of character from my understanding of him as a bloke. 
Uh, and I think he'll learn a pretty harsh lesson as a, as a result of that. Like, because you're not only paying the price in the moment, but then after it, like you've got to, you've got to live with that. And he's obviously going to have to live with whatever the, the judiciary uh, come up with tomorrow here in, in Australia, because yeah, I, I think it would probably, because there wasn't a huge amount of contact and that type of thing, it probably, I would think maybe start around a six week and then maybe get reduced because of good record. Um, he would have been spoken to by Dave Rennie that these guys are going to try and get under your skin. Like he's only had a handful of caps himself. He was partnering up with a, a debutante lock in Caden Neville whilst he's older. He's, you know, still never been in that arena. Darcy's the line-out caller. Eddie Jones would have been telling his players, get under the skin of these two young locks, right? And especially if you can take out the line-out caller because then all of a sudden you've got a debutante on his own in a line-out function with one lock who doesn't call the line-outs generally because at the Brumbies, it's again, it's Darcy Swain. So... It would have been a mandate from, from Eddie, I would imagine, for Johnny Hill, go out there and get under the skin of this young fella. And yes, you wore yellow, you, you got a yellow card and you, you sat down for 10 minutes, but ultimately he's done his job. I reckon Eddie Jones would have been particularly happy with him. Uh, and, and conversely, Dave Rennie would have been saying to him all week, don't let him get under your skin. And, you know, the red mist, once the red mist goes over your eyes, and, you know, it's all she wrote. And they knew that Dave Parecki, if they were speaking to the Saris guys, literally couldn't hit two barn doors when he was at Saris. I think he was injured. Top lad, good lad, and it's amazing his story, and we can get into that with the access that we've seen over recent weeks. He probably would laugh and be a bit annoyed. Mate, literally couldn't even hit a two-step lob when he was at Saracens. So it was a smart play by England to get under Swain's skin and then know that Parecki would have been under pressure, who actually played really well. So when you look at the profile of the team, Drew, from here in the UK, um, in Ireland, and I mentioned some of the stars of Australian rugby gone by, and I put you in that category of stars that would be recognised globally, especially on the night outs. But <laughs> when you look at the team now, and obviously Quade Cooper gets injured, we know Michael Hooper, Pocock's doing his own thing away, obviously, from rugby. There's not many where you're like, oh, no, he is. I'm watching it now, and I don't watch as much Southern Hemisphere rugby because there's so much up here that we need to consume. There doesn't seem to be these superstars of years gone by. Obviously, there's been a change of guard. What is the lay of the land? Is that part of the plan? Are these guys superstars? Are we missing something? No, mate, I think, honestly, I think we're kind of on the precipice with this next generation of stars. I mean, the, the guys that you mentioned, the Quades and the Jameses, they're sort of, you know, 32, 33 years old. I think Quade's the oldest in the squad at 34. Uh, you've got Kurtley Beal, who, who went into camp today just for a day. He won't, We won't be seeing him at least until probably, I would imagine, maybe the spring tour. But, you know, it's the next generation that are coming through, and it's the Jordan Pataias that we've seen in Super Rugby Pacific that have stood up. But they're still, like, as you know, like, there's just... He's good. He's good, mate. Like, he's good, but he's still also got to be... Like, he's only been on the scene for two years and he's still got to, um, you know, like, get exposed to this this level and and play there consistently so that he knows he can have the same impact at international level that he's been having at Super Rugby Pacific level. So, the guys like him, mate, I actually really like Izzy Parisi as well. He, he didn't get a chance on the weekend, but I hope that he gets a chance at 13 or, or somewhere in the, in the three games just so that... The, the eyeballs of the Northern Hemisphere can start to, to see some of these young guys. Rob Valentini, I think he's, he's going to be someone that we know about and hear about for a long time. I think Samu Karevi sort of in that, you know, he's, he's an older guy, but the impact that he has when he comes back to the squad is, is quite tangible and you can see that. But Vunavalu, he's someone that talk, 
I, I, I don't agree with his position in the squad. I think he probably should be playing in Australia A at the moment. But there's a very real chance that he'll play this weekend, given that Tom Banks broke his arm and then, you know, Kellaway went to fullback, Pattaya maybe shifts to a wing. Either way, we're going to have to have one outside back come into that squad. Whether I think it probably should be Tom Wright in terms of performance, but on potential, they may go with uh, Suliasi Bunavalu. And uh, yeah, so, mate, I think, you know, moving forward, there's a, there's a few guys definitely coming through. Tate McDermott could also be one of those guys. But I think what's important, and what I really like about Dave Rennie is he's, he's not rushing to put all these young guys in at the same time because it's one thing blooding them, but it's also blooding them with the right people around them as well. Because, you know, as you know, like sometimes we see these young guys that hit the scene and it's just, it, we're just too much in a rush to see them at, that, at this level. And if they're not partnered with the right experience, the right voices next to them to calm them, to help them through their experience, then often we see them never hit the, the, the peaks of the development that they probably should be hitting. So I, I like how Dave, Dave Rennie's managing it at the moment. And what about the media? What are they saying in the build-up? Perception in the UK, England, let's just stick with England at the minute, is they're going to struggle in Australia. And that's based off the back of the Six Nations, people not thinking that Eddie's picking form players, albeit he has for the tour guys like Danny Kerr, Billy Van Apola are back in. You know, arguably, you could say Billy through fault rather than design. What was the yeah. media perspective on this tour? Did they think that Australia could do something? Are they thinking England are good? Mate, to be honest, I, like in all the conversations I've had, I think everyone was quite hesitant to talk our chances up just because there was so much unknown around the English side. I think there's still some scars carried over from the 2016 3-0 drubbing that we copped down here in, in, uh, in Oz. Probably more so the chat really has been around Eddie Jones, given that he's a former Wallaby coach himself. He's under a fair bit of pressure from your media up there off the back of some poor performances in Six Nations and the like. So I think there's probably been a bit more focus on, on Eddie, more so than, than the squad. This week, I probably, that's probably shifted now that we've seen, we've seen the team perform and we've seen them play. Because also leading into this series, we saw England play against the Barbarians, but you can't really take much away from that game, given that Leicester and, and Saracens and a lot of the players weren't involved. So there wasn't a lot for us to really go by. And also for, for us to really be confident by, because we had, this is our, that was our first test match of the weekend. So I don't know, I think we're probably a little bit hesitant to really talk ourselves up in the case that we weren't too sure either. But then off the back of off the back of the weekend, mate, I just I think everyone was just really impressed with the adversity that uh, the Wallabies overcame, and that Quade Cooper went down early. They would have had you know Noah going in, James O'Connor coming down from the hospitality suites. Then early on, Darcy Swain gets a red card. Tom Banks snaps his arm. There's a lot of reasons for a young team that previously, in the last couple of years, have probably not won those matches. And that's probably been the biggest difference that we saw on the weekend was they just found a way to really just grind it out, stick together and, and get that win. So a lot of the chat also going into this series around England was around Marcus Smith. And obviously what he can do, much like what Quake can, can do or any team can do, is off the back of a, a, a dominant forward pack moving forward and that type of thing. So I don't know. I don't know if Marcus Smith would be particularly happy with the platform that was set for him and the opportunity set for him. I've seen some chat uh, off the back of last weekend's performance around whether they play. I think it was Will Greenwood said, do they play Smith and Owen Farrell together? I don't know, but I mean, you, you know, hope Eddie Jones has a bit of an idea <laughs> and not, not just sort of coming down here and, and trialling different combinations. Mate, you said that you hope Eddie Jones has got an idea. Many people, to the point where someone stopped me in the street, actually in Edinburgh, and said, <laughs> do you think Eddie Jones is trying to sabotage the English team ahead of... <laughs> 
the World Cup in a few years' time. You've worked with Eddie, right? And I think we've spoken about this. And I ain't looking for a headline like, is Eddie Jones sabotaging England? But there's a feeling, right, around Eddie that he, may, he might be. He might be sabotaging the England team because, right, we're in the media, okay? We're ex-players. We kind of know a little bit about what's going on. We can know and we can see if a player's good, if he deserves to be there. Danny Kerr, for example, he's been the best nine in England for the past three or four years. Billy's back to his best. Even when he's not at his best, he needs to be in the squad because he's one of them X-factor freak players. And Eddie don't pick him, right? He, he just don't pick him. And then with Faz, he drops him as captain, makes Courtney Law's captain. They're kicking off about that. There's so many things that you could talk about, right, with Eddie Jones. I like it because I'm in the media. I'm a quarter English, sport England sometimes. But it gives us something to talk about. But you've worked with Eddie, right, and loads of people... The way the world is now, social media, everyone's got an opinion. It's become a little bit divisive. He clearly isn't well-liked at the minute by the media in England and the general public, well, especially the guy who stopped me. He might have been Scottish in the street in Edinburgh, so it doesn't really matter. What's your views on Eddie before we get into the game? Because you've worked with him. He gave you your first cap. He seems like an engaging character, but he does seem a little bit kind of divisive and goes against what the general kind of consensus or the viewpoint is around players' form. Yeah, look, I, I think the thing with Eddie is, right, like, yes, maybe the, the the media don't like him or the general public or the English supporters are off him at the moment or they don't believe him or don't back him anymore. But the one group of people that matters is whether he's got the dressing room, whether he's still being able to get the best out of them. And the one thing that I know from experience with Eddie is he's a really intense character, right? And this is my experience from... 2004 when he picked me for the first time through to, I think, 2006, I think he was my coach. So, you know, this is a long time ago and I'm sure that he would have grown and developed as a coach. But the one thing he is, he's really intense. You know, like he's he demands absolutely everything. He'll squeeze everything out of you in every session, every team meeting, in your downtime, like everything, right? So sometimes, and, and that's why probably I was surprised, maybe not surprised, but for him to be in that role for such a long period of time and still managed to get the best out of each of those players. And maybe that's why I think he went away from some of those players like Denny Kerr or Billy Vunapolo, guys who have been in the, like in, under his tutelage for such a period of time that maybe he felt like he wasn't able to get the best out of them because you know, it's a long period of time to be so intense with the coach, right? And maybe that's why also like he thought he could get the best out of some other players. And Eddie's been quite notorious through his career to, to pick players. Like Mac, you know, he picked him without even playing Super Rugby cap and look where that ended up. You know, like he... He has got an eye for it, but maybe that's sort of also where he was at. Like he, he's starting to see some of these younger guys, like even you know, young Arundel. He was he sort of got picked from nowhere after his try against Toulon, and then you know, come up with another pretty handy try on the weekend on debut. But you know, I, I think because of that, because of his intense nature, what may seem obvious to everyone else, maybe he feels like within the team environment, he can't get the best out of them through through whatever it may be, whatever factors that are, whether it's you know. Denny Care or Bunny Poller or someone just maybe not adhering to the intensity of, or, or not not sort of able to to mesh with the intensity of for Eddie over the five or six years that he's been there and maybe he felt that they needed a bit of time away and then they come back reinvigorated who knows but the, the biggest one I think is the, the question is and mate you've got access to some of those guys inside the squad is to get a real understanding of what's going on is to have one of them to say are you doing it because you believe in him or are you doing it kind of almost in spite, you know? Like, he's a guy that demands so much from his team at every moment, mate, like every moment. And that's why he's, he's meticulous. He's notorious for his meticulous preparation. 
no stone unturned. He would have had a thing for to, to target Noah Lola Seal after uh, you know if Quaid was to go down early. All these types of things. He's so meticulous. But with that means there's got to be a real buy-in from every man in the squad because it only takes one one bloke in a squad of thirty or thirty-five on tour that gets a nose out of joint, starts talking to someone, get a bit of momentum, and then all of a sudden there's a bit of a fraction and. And then you've got like, you know, then it's all, it's it's a bit of a crisis. It's over. Exactly. And I'm not saying that England are by any means near that at all. But the moment you start to disengage with a coach and start to not buy in and and not buy all the all the things that they're, they're, they're throwing out there in team meetings and, and, and team talks, then, uh, then, you know, that's when it's uh, travel stations. But it's interesting the point you just made there around us being in and around the squad, knowing some of the lads. And I still know a few of them that are involved. And genuinely, I'd love to throw something out there and say, oh, I've heard, I don't know, Billy Vanapola's not enjoying it. Or my mate Bob Stewart, who's the physio there, is hating it under Eddie Jones. Genuinely, no one is saying anything. So I don't know whether they've signed NDAs. I don't know what's happened. But the genuine thing you hear is that actually he has a way of managing individuals. Like I go based on, not that we all believe what Hask says, but he's quite outspoken. He's obviously clearly got a good relationship. With and, and, and Hask is also going to say what he, what he thinks as well, right? Like, yeah, those guys, he can actually take their work. Exactly. But I heard that Danny Kerr wasn't happy after he played with a second team against Japan. It might not have been Japan, but I think it was. And they didn't go that well. And then he went in and aired his thoughts. There was whispers around that. But everything else you're hearing is that, like what you've just said, ridiculously intense but I suppose when you've got guys like Faz and stuff who's probably a similar character to him and you've got the young lads who are impressionable coming through then maybe that is the case but it is the kind of I suppose the media storm around him at the minute that he isn't the right man maybe because of him not picking the right players because the Six Nations hasn't gone well. Oh, I think it's it's an easy one, right, for the media. Okay, and, and we probably went through something similar with Robbie Deans, you know, back around the 2011 uh, World Cup because he was a Kiwi and because we weren't getting the results that we wanted, and because there were some selections that maybe a lot of some people scratch their head. Everyone's like, oh, he's a double agent. You know, it's you know Robbie Deans. He's working for New Zealand. Like, I think it's just an easy out, and it's, it's also it's probably a, a pretty decent uh, headline grabber, I would imagine, in the media as well, but. Yeah, I think the other thing is what my experience again with Eddie was his, whilst he was really intense, he also had a really unique way of just really calming you as well and having a bit of a joke with players and just sort of getting that balance right. And sometimes you're always still a little bit like, okay, he's having a joke with me, but is he about to rouse on me? Or, you know, like you were, you're a bit unsure. But I don't know, I just, I, I really, I really enjoyed my time under Eddie. And, and like I said, it was a long, long time ago, but. The fact that he's still, you know, in those types of positions in world rugby uh, would mean that he's developed, you know, his game and, and his coaching. And Eddie's also not the type of person, like he's, in terms of his pre- preparation for a team, it's not the type of person to just sort of say, I know everything about coaching and just stay there either. So I'm sure he's growing as well. But I, I would think that if Eddie got it together and, uh, and gave everyone a pretty decent World Cup like he did the last time around, then people would forgive him for a couple of poor Six Nation campaigns. Do you think he's trying to sabotage England then? Yes or no? <laughs> mate, mate, I hope so. I really hope so. I don't, th- I don't think it's the case, but if so, it's a bloody genius move from Rugby Australia. We'll talk a little bit about the game. So obviously the red card, losing Quaid, Tom Banks breaking his arm, that was bloody nasty. I can't believe they replayed it. Oh. I mean, he took it well, did he? Oh, I know. I would have been screaming. I actually watched the game with Kurtley Bill. He just arrived back in Australia. Only. How's he? How's Kurtley first? Mate, he's good. He's good. It's good to have my little mate Kurtley back. And uh, he's just living one suburb away from me 
uh, with his in-laws because uh, he and his beautiful wife are expecting their first child in the coming months. So On that, Drew, what kind of dad will he be? Well, you know what? I asked him. I think he's going to be a real softie. You know, I think uh, Maddie, his wife, is going to have to be the disciplinarian because uh, I think KB is going to be a real softie. Look, he's emotional. It, you know, we've seen him on the field as well. He wears his bloody heart in the sleeve, and that's what we love about him. He's, you know, vulnerability is not an issue for Kurtley. So, you know, he's having a little boy. So I think when he sees his little boy, I think he's uh, he's going to be in a bit of trouble because that little boy is going to get away with a lot. And he's got that little fellow is also going to have a, a bloody lot of uncles that are going to, you know, show him the way and and, and lead him astray. And uh, we, we can't wait for it. Oh, good on him. So you watched it with him. And what was yeah. the general consensus? I mean... Did you see James O'Connor before? Let's start with that because Dave Rennie almost went as far as saying we got James O'Connor down from the boxes. I'm sure he was about to say beer in hand when they lost Quaid to put him on the bench. Well, you know what, mate? Like this is it's really weird because there's so many synergies here in 2005 with Adam Ashley Cooper's debut. So Adam Ashley Cooper came over. Is this one of the five younger guys that were coming to the environment to kind of see and feel what the environment was about? And Elton Flatley got concussed in the warm up. And Adam was there with beer in hand and a pie in his hand in the stands, ready to watch the game. And uh, Chris Webb, who's who was the then manager, is and you know under under Eddie Jones is the current Wallabies manager as well. Called him and said, "Mate, get down to the sheds." The protocol is no matter whether you're in the 22, 23, the extended sort of the guys who warm up with the squad or the extended sort of hospitality group, you've got to take your boots just in case, right? That's obviously paid dividends for them to have that have that protocol in place. But so Adam went down and he got his cap. So I, I was watching the footage and when I saw Sharon Flyhive, the doctor, Kieran Cleary, the physio, and, and Dave Rennie talking to Quaid, Quaid was sort of pointing to his calf. And I, I, I said to Kurt, I said, mate, the fact that the doctor and the physio aren't even touching his leg means he's gone. Like he's, there's no way he's coming back from that. Like if, you know, if you get a slight strain and they're down there and they're trying to rub it out or they're trying to strap it up or whatever, they're trying to, go out of their way to, to make it okay. I just looked at it and I thought, mate, this body language isn't good. They're not they're not even attempting to try and get him back out there. He's not going to play. Then he gets the call, down he goes. And, uh, you know, we saw we saw uh, the footage, great access, like you mentioned. And, you know, Quaid in the dressing rooms, he's disappointed, but everyone going up there and just sort of, mate, you know what was really cold? There's a bit of footage. Quaid was sitting in his chair and everyone's obviously coming up to say, you know, like, you know, sorry, mate, you know, we're all good. And Chris Webb, the manager, went behind and just grabbed his jersey that was hanging behind him and obviously took it to go give it to Noah. Uh, I mean, obviously, like, it had to happen, right? But it was also like, oh, you know, like just having everything you want to achieve in that week, you know, for your team and, and also individually, just to have someone sneak up behind and take your jersey and hand it off to someone else. But um, that's the brutal sport that we live in. And I'm sure he probably would have tried, you know, he could have probably tried to go out there and do a job, but probably knew in himself that he probably would have only had five or 10 minutes in him before he would have put the, t- the team in a similar predicament without, a, a, you know, an able body backup like James. Yeah, well, with Noah starting, it was cometh the hour, cometh the man, as they say in movies. And like you mentioned, Quade Cooper, fair play to him, because he could have carried on. It was such a big game, high-profile game. He'd spoken about Marcus Smith in the lead-up. People are drawing comparisons to the two players, and then we're all we're all thinking when we're watching it for the reasons we've just spoken about. Don't really know a load of the Australian players. Quade Cooper, one of the best players in the world. James O'Connor's been in the bar upstairs. He's now on the bench. Do you know what I mean? We don't really know much about the Australian team. What do you make of the performance when you were there with Kirtley? Well, I was just going to say, you know what, mate? It was actually really lucky and advantageous for, for the Wallabies that 
it's a new James and it's not the James of old because I think if it was the James of old, you know, maybe five, eight years ago when he was in the Wallaby squad upstairs in the hospitality suite, he would have come down with a, with an absolute gut full of, of, of Swan Lager. And, uh, you know, it could have been a different proposition, but, you know, I'm really proud of, uh, you know, Quade Cooper and also James O'Connor in terms of the, just so how far they've come from, from them as young blokes. And if it was, me at the start of my career or the end of my career or right now where I sit, I would have probably had at least six schooners in my guts as well. So um, that's, that's probably saying more about me than it is about um, the hospitality suites. But yeah, let's get on to, to Noah's performance. I thought, you know, it was interesting. I, I had a, a chat on a radio show that I do with Matt Guido on the weekend and he just he sort of mentioned being in that position, playing as 10. Sometimes it's actually probably, not that you would do this every time, but, you know, for a young guy going up against England, you know, in the first test, it can often be better to have the situation play out for Noah the way it did because if he's starting from the start of the week and if he knows he's starting, there's so, so many opportunities to play that through in your head, how the game's going to go out and play your game before it actually happens and feel the pressure and hear the noise in the media, you know, young guy against young guy and, you know, the, the English forward pack and the pressure they're going to put on, all these types of things, right? So he would have probably been getting himself in the mindset set to play 20, 30 minutes off the bench off the back of, you know, what Quade Cooper's gone out there and, and the foundations he's laid and, you know, gone out there thinking he's going to play a role. And now that role's changed and he's got literally five minutes to, to change, you know, to think about that. It just looked like he went out there with a lot of confidence. The players have really rallied around him, got around him. I think it was also great that he had an experienced half in Nick White inside him, Simon Karevi outside, who I thought... Played a really strong role, Samu, in terms of stepping up. He, he kicked a lot more than we than we're used to seeing Samu kick, so it was alleviating some of the pressure on Noah. I just found it really interesting that, that Makido was sort of saying that that type of approach can often play to your advantage when you don't have enough time to prepare for it. One of the things that hasn't surprised me because I've seen it in a few games before is the growth of the forwards of Australia. My good mate, partner in crime, Petrus Duplessis, has been doing the scrum. Jeff Parlin was involved with a line-out and stuff like that. Firstly, do you know much about Petrus or not, Petrus Dupasi? Obviously, uh, you know, I knew of him when he was playing. I've not had too much to do. I think I've, I've had a, a brief conversation since he's been out here, but I uh, was impressed with what he did, you know, when he was playing. I think maybe he would play it against him towards when I was living over there in France, playing at Salon, yeah. I barely spoke to the props in my team, let alone, you know, any, anyone on opposing teams. I remember Andy Sheridan was in my team one time, just quickly to, to digress, but... I used to call him Shandy because it was Andy and Sheridan Shandy. And I was like, hey, Shandy, how are you? He goes, well, that's not my name. I was like, well, what's your name? He said, it's Andrew. And I was like, yeah, but I mean, like, we're mates. Like, he said, well, no, we're not mates. And I was like, what are we? He goes, we're colleagues. And I was like, well, I'm going to become your mate and I'm going to call you Shandy. And, and in the end, I only got his respect and, uh, and the ability to call him Shandy with him not wanting to wring my neck by, by scoring 200. So... Yeah, that, that was as far as my communication go with, with props. But I like what Petrus has done. I like what he did when he was a player, but don't really know too too much as, uh, of him as a bloke. Well, the reason I bring it up is that he's into the old injectables, not steroids, Botox. So if you see Dave Rennie, Tatsy, you see Jeff Parlin walking around with plump lips, that is all on Petrus Dupacy. So they're going to be looking a million. My thinking is, is it's a double whammy. Scrum. And look in a million dollars. That's what I'm thinking. That's why they brought him in. Now it's time for a bit of truth tree, Jimmy. You you look like you don't have any bags under your eyes. Have you had a little, a couple of fillers, or are you? Like... <laughs> a couple of fillers. That is that a compliment. I hand on heart can say it's the morning, right? It's the morning, not the morning after. It's the morning. 
in the UK when we're recording. I'll take that as a compliment. I won't put the head down, but I oh, know. Look, you got a bit up there, but like you, you need to, you need to maintain some sort of frown lines or crow's feet. But I, I just felt under the eyes, you're looking impeccable. Thank you. It's the quarter Chinese in me, which people think I'm taking the piss. You know, if you put my name in on Google, and uh, not that I do every day, but most days, just to check sure. the landscape of media. It has Jim Hamilton. It has Jim Hamilton fight. It has Jim Hamilton rugby, Jim Hamilton podcast. So <laughs> the legacy of my life. Fourth down, it has Jim Hamilton. Is he Chinese? Because people think I'm taking the piss. Like when I say it, and we've obviously spent some time in Hong Kong. When I say, oh, quarter Chinese or whatever, I genuinely think people think I'm taking the piss. I'm not. So and that you've just reaffirmed the fact that my eyes are very good. And the underneath of the eye, my skin basically is very soft and smooth. And that is an Asian trait. I was going to say, Jesus Christ, that's the wine, mate. That's, you've got black eyes. I know, mate. mate. I, got, I, I get charged excess baggage as soon as I get out of bed. Yeah, there is something for that. I'll speak to Petrus. He'll be able to sort that out. He'll just inject a few fillers in there. You'll be sweet. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go. Yeah, I might. I might have to catch up with him. Uh, I'm going up to the Brisbane Test a couple of days early. I might have to catch up with him, and uh, I'll be looking an absolute million bucks on the coverage. Is that SunCorp? Is it? Is that the stadium? Yeah. So it's at SunCorp, and uh, look, the Wallabies do really enjoy playing there. It's probably far and away the best stadium to play out in Australia in terms of just like for for either rugby code, league, and union. You look. You ask any player, league or union player. In Australia, Suncorp's the one because the, the crowd is so close. It's it's a it's a custom built stadium for rugby league, rugby union. They just love their, their rugby up there as well. So they'll be well supported, and it's also really close to the city. So you got Caxton Street. You walk straight down. You know, it's it's a good atmosphere. I don't know what it is, but we perform pretty well at at, at Suncorp, generally speaking. Not that I've done a load of research into the second game which is the pivotable one for both teams naturally. And that's the beauty of these three test series. So you mentioned the stadium there. Obviously, Australia winning that first test the way they did. England came back towards the end, but it was a nothing thing. Have you seen enough in this England team to be worried? Or is it the fact that Australia played mainly? I love this. Look, he's sitting back, he's smiling with 14 men. I'm like a peacock. I know. Well, I, you, I, there must be a feeling where you are because the scoreline flattered England in the end, really. So are you worried about game two? I think you've got to respect England going forward. I think they're going to make some changes. You know, whilst Australia had to change and, and adapt on the run, when, when something happens to an opposition, you also have to adapt and, and change as well. So, you know, it wasn't just Australia having to change what they were wanting to do. I'm sure they would have probably had a pretty different game plan for Quade Cooper than they would have for Noel Olesu. So it's not just about Australia having to, to adapt and change their game. I think 
England would have, to, to a degree at least, had to have changed what they were thinking all through the week and what they prepared for as well. I just did see, though, that Tom Curry, the seven, has just been ruled out of the tour through concussion, which is, you know, you never want to see anyone ruled out for anything, right? Um, let alone concussion, which we already sort of touched on. But, you know, he, I think, you know, he's, he's a real world-class player and he's got to be a huge loss for them. We do, when I say we, Australian sort of supporters, we do take encouragement from playing most of the game on, well, however many minutes with, with 14, but also having to, to adapt to Quaid's uh, withdrawal to Tom Banks getting injured, that type of thing. I think moving forward into this next game, we're pretty comfortable. I, I don't like when players involved in a team say hope in, in media interviews, because I think if you're in a team, you should believe. And if you're relying on hope, then you probably, I, I think there's a lot to look into that when players say, I hope, but I'm not in the team. I'm not in the squad. But you're also come from a successful background. When I played for Scotland, it was only hope or luck. They were the two <laughs> buzzwords. Mate, un- unfortunately, I didn't have anywhere near as much success in the gold jersey that I would have liked. I definitely didn't hope for Toulon, but for some of the other teams, I was, there's perhaps a little bit of hope. But yeah, like I just engaged a little bit on Twitter when I was there watching with, with Kurtley Bill the other night. And Joe Marler, who's obviously not playing, but an English prop, he was talking about how the Ford pack's going to smack and dominate the, the Wallabies. And I just replied with a LOL. And I think there was one other that I replied with LOL. And, and he's thrown out a, uh, a bet, a challenge for, for this upcoming game. So if, if England win, I have to walk up Caxton Street, which is just a street of pubs, just absolutely filled with to the brim with Aussies who look like they've been sent from England, you know, all those years ago in an English jersey. Budgie Smugglers and singing Swing Like oh, Sweet Chariot. So I, I put it on the line, mate. I think after that performance, I was pretty happy with, with what we put out there and the adjustments we can make moving into game two. Yeah, I'm hoping that uh, it's going to be Joe Marlin in a Wallabies jersey somewhere in England. Is that So what's the reverse? So what will we see in England if Australia win? I, I don't know what street or where he's, you know, where he's sort of located, but I mean, he threw out the the loser has to wear the opposing team's jersey and a pair of budgie smugglers and sing the anthem uh, of the other team. So he'll be singing Advanced Australia Fair, hopefully. I don't know whether it's going to be straight after the game. I, I figured it's just, it's easy for me if the Wallabies lose just to walk out of the stadium and up the up the street and get it over and done with. And I'll uh, I'll pay my dues because that's what I do if, if that's the case. But I, uh, I I just think that Joe Marl is probably going to be the one wearing a Wallabies jersey. You must be confident. I don't want to say that you're out of shape at the minute. You look comfortable, which is good. It's a good place to be. You're on the you're on the wine. I wore a black shirt for those reasons. <laughs> exactly. Just uh, cover what's underneath. You're obviously going to wear a jersey if, or either of you is going to wear a jersey. Joe Marler is what he is. He's clearly a big unit. Where do you think the game's going to be won and lost for the millions of listeners? who are mad keen on rugby at the weekend. We don't want to see a red card. We don't want to see these yellows. It's highly likely that we'll definitely see yellows. But where do you see the game being won or lost? So if you're saying to the listeners, from an English perspective, for them to win the game, where would you change it? Would you have Henry Arundel in? I mean, goodness me. I know it's a, a speculative thing to say, but off just the back of one try, who would he come in for? Who would you change? Look, I don't think that, and with respect to Henry and also to the position that I played all my career, I don't think a winger, a winger is going to be the difference or an outside back, you know, depending on where he, where he ends up. But look, I, I just think that my worry going into game one was around the, the, the physicality of it and the contest, right? Because our, our, our two teams that made the Super Rugby Pacific Finals, Moritz got dominated physically by the Chiefs and the Brumbies got dominated physically by the Blues in the semi final. So that was where I was, I was probably most 
concerned or at least a little bit, um, you know, had the question marks over that part of the game. So I, I still think moving forward, that's where the game's going to be won and lost. You know, when you when you allow players like Samu Karebi to get on the front foot and either have the decision to run or kick rather than being on the back foot and only having the, the decision to kick or, you know, basically run it in to set up for someone else to kick. I think there's a big difference in that. I probably would have someone bigger in the midfield for England, to be honest. I just think they're probably not getting enough advantage line and their centres. Is it Marchant? Yeah, that Marchant. Is that the pronunciation? No, in your French, it is Marchant, but in English, it's Joe Marchant. Marchant, okay, yeah. Marchant, like on the wine just behind me. But look, and you know, I think he's a really class player, but when you couple him with Owen Farrell, then there's there's not a huge amount of advantage line there. And... and and whether you use Crockett a singer that comes off the wing or whatever it is, I just think you need a, a bigger body, whether it's in the midfield or use your your, your blindside winger more to get over the advantage line. Or maybe even go to short lineouts and put Billy out there and get on the advantage line that way. You know, just have a bigger body that gets you on the front foot because I think that's probably what they, they struggled a little bit. I think the statistics show this as well. That England kick more than what we've been used to in Super Rugby Pacific. You don't want to just go in there knowing that you're just going to get to your kick all the time. You want to, and also, if you get someone on the front foot over the advantage line, and you've got the choice to, you know, if you've shortened the defensive line and they're not able to set yet, you've got the choice to run or kick, then that's a much better position to then just go into something thinking we're going to kick first, second, third phase. So I'd probably make a, a, you know, a couple of slight selection changes around just being able to get advantage line in the first phase for England. But, you know, who am I? I'm, I've never coached a team whether it be under sevens or, or international footy in my life. But I just think it's it's always a better position to be in when you've got a couple of options off the back of front football. Does Farrell worry you at 12 or not? I think he's a 10. I mean, it's a debate that people are having across the country in England. Marcus Smith, everyone's talking about him. But the way that Farrell finished the season for Saracens, he was the standout player, one of the standout players in the world. Does he worry you at 12? He, don't worry, he wouldn't worry me at 12. Not that I'm... Um, at all position to say that. No, but I, I think if you look at it, right, I think sometimes, whether it's test footy or whatever, sometimes coaches try and get their best players on the field and maybe play them out of position and think that they're good enough to play it. And sure, Owen Farrell is good enough to play 12. But, you know, when it comes down to it against a tier one nation and when they're under the pressure, I, I don't think you're getting enough from him at 12 than you would get from a genuine 12 playing at 12. I think you've got to play players in position. I think Farrell is a fantastic 10. I played against him, uh, you know, Saracens Toulon a number of times and, and, and I respect what he brings as a 10. I think he controls the game really well, but I just don't know if you need two controllers at 10 and 12. Marcus Smith, when he gets the front football, quick ball, he's pretty good on his feet. But when I'm looking at defending an Owen Farrell at 12, it's more about what he creates than what he runs. Yeah, absolutely. Right, so Budgie Smuggler's on the line. You reckon Australia going to win game two? Do you reckon it will be a whitewash? And if it is, is that underline the fact that Eddie Jones has sabotaged the England team? I don't think there's any sabotage going on. And I'm happy enough to make a wager with you now for a whitewash. And look, it just seems to be the thing to do with the series. But I'm Scottish. Yeah, I know. But you're also quarter England, like which you told me earlier. So you do support them. And you're making me make some outlandish predictions here, which I always, you know, I'm hesitant, but willing to do so for you, Jim. I think it will be 3-0. I think we'll, we'll right the wrongs of 2016. Big call. I reckon it'll be 2-1. I reckon it'll make, a lo- it'll make a load of changes for Game 3. I think Australia will win Game 2 because of this Suncorp Stadium that everyone keeps talking about. And I just think 
the fact that you lads had 14 men, played all right, a load of changes. I think the confidence going through the team, I just think it'll be 2-0 at the weekend and then 2-1 just because I don't, yeah, they'll, they'll all be hanging apart from James O'Connor who don't drink anymore. So they'll all be <laughs> out of cup for the third game. Well, what about we? Uh, whenever we do catch up next, whoever's prediction's wrong, other one has to pay pay for dinner and a few wines. That will make that. I'm happy. To, I'm happy to do that because either way, I win because I get to go out with Drew Mitchell, <laughs> the great Drew Mitchell. Tell me about the media landscape. I tweeted about it at the weekend. Stan Sports. There must be a couple of others that are doing it. Man, I'm absolutely loving it. Um, even watching the All Blacks Island game, the eight camera, 8K camera that they have on the pitch, you know, after the tries and stuff like that, brings the players into the living room. But the access that the media are getting is insane. There's a big play in the media here. I'm not, you know, going to talk too much about it. But Australia seemed like they're innovative they're trying things they're getting the very best people for the job and there seems to be a lot of engagement coming back from the coaches from the players even being interviewed as they're coming off at half time it looks wicked maybe like yeah look to be honest i'm uh, i'm in a really privileged position to be able to be a part of the broadcasting team and you know as you know like there's there's never too many positions to to fill right so to be one of those people to to get that opportunity and man i, I love it like i love not having to go cold turkey since retiring. Like I get to go there and feel the the, the, the atmosphere and the, the game day feels and the nervous energy before going on air and that type of thing. But the way that we're trying to bring the game closer to the fans, trying to get access, and a lot of that access is, comes down to the, the coaches that we, we engage with at Super Rugby level, but also test level now. Because I think people just need to realise the more access they give, the better it is for the game. Like the game just needs to be exposed more and, you know, and, and the stories need to be told. And because ultimately, as, as broadcasters and as, as former players, but now in, in commentary, we're, we're there to tell a story. And the story is what's playing out in front of us. But it's also the story of these players and their journey to get to where they want to be, which is what we saw Sean Maloney, a great interview with Dave Perek and his old man after the game. And those types of, those types of sort of like uh, feel good moments that we wouldn't have access to otherwise if we didn't go to these teams and ask them, can we get in the inner sanctum? Because for so long, a real protected part of the game of rugby and a beautiful part of the game of rugby is the inner sanctum. There's parts of it that I think should still be exposed to the greater community and rugby community around the world because so many things that happen in the dressing room or within a team environment that get the hairs up in the back of your neck standing and, and you know, make you love the game and, and also just, I don't know, it's just a, a nice sort of feel-good moment, you know, whether it's someone getting their first cap or someone sharing that moment with their dad or their partner or whoever it is. So we're, we're working really hard uh, in our broadcast team and, you know, both all of us on, on camera, but also the ones behind the scenes to get access to that. Our coverage at least went even further this, oh, well, the first test match, but our, our last test match here, for the fans to vote which player they wanted to have a single camera to follow for the entire game, uh, which you can, you can go back and watch as well on stand. And that was Michael Hooper. You can really just sort of see what he, what he does, like his work rate, his work off the ball, his leadership, all that type of thing. You can even watch from spider cam if you want to. All these initiatives and, and innovations that we're trying to bring can only happen if the teams give us that, that access. But it also can only happen if they appreciate the value in giving us the access. And it's not just for that individual or for that team, it's for the game. And for any broadcasters around the world, the more that we can get, the better for the game and, and the more the game's going to grow.
Yeah, absolutely. And I think Australia, from what I've seen, are leading the charge. What do you think makes a good commentator? Now, this is one of the debates. Don't go on social media and get an opinion off there because they just rinse everyone. But as an ex-player, yeah. and sometimes it's easy for us, isn't it? Oh, that they, you know, these journos haven't played the game. I've learned that that isn't the way because some of them are well-read. They've been yeah. in the game a long, long time. There are still some old-fashioned ones out there that have never played the game and you know don't know much about it. But there are some there out there that are really good. But there is a bugbear when you go on social media or when you watch games that some of the commentators aren't amazing. What's perceived as a good commentator or someone that's good on the TV? I, I really like Sean Maloney. I love the way that he interviews and his energy and stuff. What do you think makes a good one, though? Well, mate, to be honest, um, you know that's probably something I'm still searching for. Like, I, I think, I think you've just got to kind of understand and appreciate my position, like your your own position, right? Like, I think what makes a good commentator or what will make a good commentator, because I'm still striving for that. Because you know, yes, I know the game to an extent, but it's also how you then portray that to the viewer and keep them engaged and use your voice because there's so many elements to it, right? It's not just what you're seeing, but how do you then convey that to the listener uh, to the listener or, or to the viewer? You know, the other side of it is, I, I just think if you apply yourself with the same amount of application as you were as a player, as you are as a broadcaster, that's what I'm taking. That's the view I'm taking, right? Like I'll take a notepad to everything. I'll try and learn. I'll try and get better. I want to be the best in the room. But I'm also aware that I go out there sometimes and I have poor performances and I make mistakes and not everyone's going to have the same opinion of me and uh, as I do, sorry. That's okay as well. Like there's no point having a, uh, a panel of four people going into a test match all have the same opinions. So you may not agree with what I'm saying, but you might agree with what Tim Horn's saying. The other thing, I, I probably fall into a bit of a category and one thing I get from our big boss, the, the head of um, Channel 9 here at Wide World of Sports, he often texts me going, Drew, take a breath, mate. Speak slower. You know, like it's... Because I get so, like, you know, I feel the atmosphere and I'm just like, I get so excited by it, but I've, it often can be probably you know, a little bit difficult for people to kind of engage in because I'm so excited. But often it's just about matching the energy of the people that you're with as well. Sean, he stands up. Sean, Sean's like, he's, he's, an, he's a different one. He takes his shoes off. He likes to feel the ground. And um, what do you mean he takes his shoes off? So in the commentary gig, he's got his, he's got his pants on, he's got his headphones and his mic. He'll take his shoes off just underneath and he stands there and, and he's, you know, he's up and he's active, you know, when he's playing. Like when he, when the, when the boys are playing, Sean in, and I'll, I'll maybe I'll try and get a bit of footage of it. But Sean, he takes his shoes off, and he's up there, and he's going. And I just think I can't match that energy if I'm sitting down in my, th- like in my chair, looking like this, right? So I feel like, okay, I've got to get up because, you know, Sean is, oh, I've got to remember whatever it might be, and then I just go, yeah, it was a great try, you know, like it's, it's sort of, it doesn't match, right? Like you've got to have that good synergy and connection as well, and you can't do that. I feel. If I'm uh, if I'm sitting down and Big Shawnee and his shadows just like just you know like drowning me out, so I, I think it's you've got to have yeah a good relationship with the people you do it with, and I'm really lucky that the people that I work with at uh, at Stan Channel Nine, I'm I'm really fond of uh, of you know as as people as well. So I don't know, that's a long that's a roundabout way of saying I don't really know what makes a commentator mate a good commentator, but I'm I'm trying and uh, I'm just I'm I'm loving the opportunity to be able to to get to try and grow in that position. Right, let's just build up to the World Cup. I don't know when we're going to get you again. Uh, hopefully, it's me having to fly to Australia to take you out for dinner. Always available for you, mate. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if it is 2-1, I'm flying to Australia. I'm going to tell the wife and kids that it's part of the deal. Like, this is my job. I, I may be, I may, I just may be in Greece next month and I may be in France the month after. So, 
a might save you uh, about 22 hours and you can just fly across to one of those two countries and shout me dinner. Well, I may just do that because, as we know, <laughs> it's the off-season. It's the off-season. It's July, <laughs> August. It's the summer. So talking about France, the World Cup is in about 18 months. And what are the expectations from an Australia perspective? But maybe people listening to this from all over the world that are keen to potentially come to France. What are the good parts of France and why they should come. Did you play in the 2007 World Cup in France? Yeah. How good? It was so good, wasn't it? Oh, mate, it was amazing. Look, that was my first experience at the World Cup. We were based for the most part in Montpellier. Um, we we basically, uh, the Wallaby squad, we had uh, a hotel that kind of just became like our own studio apartment. And by that, I mean, we would leave all our stuff there. And then if we were playing in Bordeaux or somewhere else, we just we wouldn't even have to check out. We'd just grab our stuff that we needed for that day or two, go play the game, come back. So it was like a real home base for us. And it was uh, and Montpellier, whilst obviously everyone was supporting France, we were their second team. I mean, this, the, the screens that they'd put up in the, in the town square just to watch every game of the World Cup. Like it was just, it was probably my favorite World Cup. And, you know, I played in. The, the French, uh, the New Zealand, and the English one in 2015. I say that respectfully, but I just think that my experience of it, maybe it's because I was also 23, you know, first experience and, and you know, first time in France and whatever, but mate, we'd had 10, 10 12,000 people at Montpellier Stadium to come watch us train. Like, it was nuts. And, and then moving forward in my career, I got to live down in Toulon for four years. The people are amazing. The food, obviously, is crazy, but, like, it's, it's just a, a, a beautiful country who really get behind their rugby as well. And any experience at World Cups, everyone's just really willing to kind of help each other. Uh, you know, if you need to get somewhere or you need directions or little things like that, I think are like, yeah, you just see the good side of humans as well. Like obviously at the games, people are really strong in who they support and all that type of thing. But like every bit of my experience at any World Cup, but especially in France, People go out of their way just to enjoy it. And, and I, I, my time living there, I think the biggest thing that I was sort of my eyes opened up to was they they work to live rather than live to work. And I think that's probably, you know, the biggest thing, right? They work enough to be able to enjoy their lives. They work just enough to have enough time off. They have the siestas. They have their day off on Wednesdays. You know, and I was down in the south, obviously, so on the med. But, like, they would spend a lot of time at the beaches and at the little beach bars. And so they work just enough as much as they had to to be able to then just enjoy life rather than, you know, sometimes I feel like here in Australia, we're all guilty of just going for our week, getting to the weekend, having one day of pleasure and then Sunday getting ready for the week ahead, which is pretty much the carbon copy of the week before and we keep going around. So we're living to work and I was, yeah, that was probably the biggest thing. So the culture over in France, people just want to just enjoy life and I would 100% encourage anyone and everyone around the world to get involved in the Rugby World Cup 2023 because, you know, I'm, I'm not on any payroll. I'm, I'm going to go over there myself and I'm not getting paid by French tourism yet, maybe. But, yeah, I just think, man, I just think they do it so well, Jim. Like, I'm, I was really impressed by it. Love the country and, uh, and can't wait to see you up there as well. And Australia's expectation for the Australian listeners and the people that don't want Australia to do well? Does it even matter that we talk about Australia, what they're going to do at the World Cup, or is there, are they in such a transition now that it's about the now? No, mate, I, I think everyone's – it's always going to matter in a World Cup. I think everyone – that's when everyone really gets gets behind the Wallabies. I was 
you know, when I was involved in 2015, we weren't particularly fancied moving into that uh, World Cup, but the run that we got on, you know, that, that easy win over the Scots in the quarterfinal. <laughs> um, joking. Oh, no, it was. I mean, I don't want to go back to that, but two-step lob, it could have been different. Anyway, old news. Sorry, go. <laughs> Once we sort of got on that run, uh, you know, the support that we had was, was you know, just amazing. What we need as a game is we need a successful tournament now against England. When I say success, it's not necessarily just about getting trophies and collecting trophies. It's about engagement to community. It's about engagement to our grassroots. It's about getting people around our game so they're excited to watch our, our guys go out there and play. It's it's not just the, the Wallabies as well. It's the Wallaroos. It's the Sevens program, men and women. Like It's just about kind of putting rugby back on the map a little bit and here in Australia at least. And then moving into the World Cup, we're still going to have the same expectations, mate. Like, you know, like it's going to be a failure if we don't make semifinals or the final. So, you know, and that's that's a tough ask, but that's kind of what, that's the landscape we're in. Like they expect, when I say they, we, supporters, fans, we expect success. And that's the same in every sport that we, we compete in for Australia. So I've got to be realistic about it. I think France and France are probably, I think, the favourites going into it. Not just because they're the hosts. I think Galtier has done a tremendous job in getting a really deep squad over the last couple of years. Like, you know, some of the Six Nations teams he's had to pick through COVID and whatever else. And and then when he came down here to play a three-game series, when France came down here, they have exposed at least 50 players to test match footy in the last 18 to 24 months. And, you know, as we, as we know, going into big tournaments, you've got to lose some of your headline players. So you need to have players that, one, they have individually, they have the confidence to do the job, but their teammates have the confidence to do the job, but also their coaches have the confidence in them to do the job as well. So I think for that, France are probably the favourites moving forward. Like I said, um, Australia will be disappointed if we don't get through and, and contest the, the final against the French. Right, last question before we go. I asked this to a few of the guests that I chat to on the Big Gym Show. State of rugby at the minute, give us, us a couple of lines on where we're at in terms of just across the board, commercially, growth, engagement, player welfare. I know there's so much we can talk about, but it is a kind of topic that I'm trying to get to the bottom of. On the other side of the world, how does rugby union look from there? Mate, I think the one area we need to get into is obviously North America, right? We need to tap into that market. It's such a huge market. Obviously, 2031 hosting rights for the Men's World Cup and thereafter, you know, it's huge. But I think one thing that American sport does really well and, and you look at the Premier League and, and soccer, football or whatever, um, wherever you live in the world, whatever you term it, is whilst there are team sports out there, there's also a huge emphasis on individualism and, and the individual profiles. And I don't know if, because part of our values in rugby is about humility and it's about respect and all these things, we quite often don't like to talk up the individual. I think we really need to start embracing the individuals of our game, the characters in our game and really promote them. Um, so that we get people to engage. I think we should all have, we should have our last names on our test jersey so that every photo, every bit on content, social media, that people know who they are. They can quickly identify who they are. All these types of things, merchandise, then you can buy your own, you know, your, your jersey with that number and that particular name, all those types of things. I think there's a lot we could do off the field to help engage the wider sporting public. And I think the state of the game's strong, but like anything, I think if we keep relying on the things that, have got us to this point. We're going to stay at this level. So we've got to find new ways. Look at NBA. LeBron James putting his, his shoes on, getting asked, like, you know, putting his shoes on just before going out to play a game in game seven. And there's access from the media inside the dressing room. Like, it's it's become their norm. It may not have been years ago, 
but it's become their norm. We need to create new norms in rugby, whether it's broadcasting access, expressing an individual in our game, as well as still respect around the teams. I think there's a ways to go. Drew Mitchell, 100% agree with you. My second favourite Australian. It was class chatting to you, mate. Mate, who's your number one? Russell Crowe. Gladiator. I've never met him. Oh. <laughs> He's my favourite. Sorry. Maximus Decimus Meridius. No, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I'll take second to him. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to meeting up in Greece on holiday or France on holiday. <laughs> second, but it's a stag do. It's, it's a stag do. It's a stag do. Yeah, it's, it's a stag, a stag do, stag do. It's definitely a stag do, yeah. Yeah. What do you mean a lad's holiday? It's a stag do. It's business. Uh, Drew Mitchell, thanks very much. Good luck for the rest of the series. This is evergreen on the Big Jim show, so tell all your mates about it and uh, we'll get Sean Maloney and Russell Crowe on at some point. Now, Russell Crowe's be first, join me second, Sean Maloney third and get Matt Gitto's number four. Mate, love your work and uh, mate, really looking forward to catch up in the person. Loved it.